0: Scripture reading is from Isaiah 6 this morning. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him, each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the threshold shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. The word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. God. Well, good morning. Good to see you today. Thanks for being with us uh, for our worship service. Mr. Rogers, as he so often did, uh, provided this wonderful, I think, reassurance for children when faced with something terrible. You've probably heard it. He said, when I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. Look for the helpers. Of course, we know that at times you may have to look longer and harder than you would hope to find them, but they are there. And this has, of course, become a ubiquitous, very memeable phrase. I'm sure you've seen it floating around on the Internet. Look for the helpers. But I actually think it's pretty sound advice for children. And I have seen the pushback that argues, well, we've taken this advice that was meant for preschoolers, and we use it to ease our own discomfort or to ease our own consciences in the face of a tragedy when what is needed is not for adults to be comforted in this way, but for adults to work at making changes that make that sort of comfort unnecessary. And I guess to some degree I sympathize with that sentiment, however, I also personally reject the notion that adults are no longer in need of help to process and to navigate a world that is filled with such horror. While we certainly, at least hopefully, have more wisdom, have more resources to use, and and the ability and responsibility to initiate change, I want to submit that we never outgrow our need for help. And I want to submit that, but that's not coming from me. I actually think Jesus argues as much in our gospel text today from John 16. So it's a different source of help that Jesus is pointing us to than what Mr. Rogers was talking about. But the point stands that we are in need of help. Three weeks ago, our scripture reading was from a few chapters before this, John 14, where Jesus promised to send his disciples a helper. So keep that in mind, look for the helpers. Jesus promises to send his disciples a helper as he prepares them for his death and impending absence. This is what he said beginning in verse 15 of John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, And he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you and then down in verse 25 these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you but the helper Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. The Father is sending you the helper. It's as though Jesus is, in a way, saying, look for the helper. Look for the helper. You are going to need the helper. And why does Jesus insist that they will need the helper? Well, if we fast forward to today's gospel text in John 16, we see that Jesus warns the disciples that they should expect persecution, that they should expect to be expelled from the synagogue community. This is inevitable. Or maybe we would think of the story we looked at last month from Acts chapter 9 where God tells Ananias, I am going to show Saul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. This is an inevitability. Jesus says, If the world hated me, if the world persecuted me, they are also going to hate and persecute those who follow me. A servant is not greater than his master. And then in John 16, he concludes this warning in verse 4 I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. So he has kept this warning that follows under wraps until now because he has been with them. And his physical presence provided uh, a sense of unprecedented security. I mean, if he's here by my side, I can see him with my eyes. I can reach out and and physically touch him. I, I know he's going to care for me. I mean, he has the power to physically bring healing to broken bodies. I've seen that happen. He has the power to multiply meager provisions and and feed thousands of people. I've seen it with my own eyes. He has the power to calm raging storms. I know that he can provide protection and safety for me. Even if we face persecution and hardship now, as long as he is by my side... I know that I am safe. If you're a parent of a young child, I'm sure this actually sounds very familiar to you, or, or maybe you remember being a young child yourself, faced with a new, unfamiliar, maybe scary environment, and your grip around the neck of the adult you're with gets a wee bit tighter. Do You know that? Or you go in for that python wrap around the leg of the adult that you know can keep you safe. To this point, the disciples had that sort of reassurance. I can physically cling to Jesus if need be. The problem is that now he's not going to be by their side in the same way. And so Jesus says you need this comfort You need to know what to expect so that when you face difficulty, maybe even death, your faith might remain strong. So he begins preparing them again for his absence. Verse 5, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus intuits, he sees that his words are filling the disciples with, Sorrow. You know that feeling when you're sharing disappointing news with somebody and you can see their face and their demeanor begin to droop in front of you even as you're talking. That's sort of what I picture going on here. But even as Jesus sees the demeanor of his disciples changing, he insists, though you are filled with sorrow at this news, I assure you my departure is actually to your advantage. This is good for you in the end, because if I go, the Father will send the helper. If I stay, the helper won't come. Now this text gets a bit technical theologically, and I want to explore that a little bit uh, as Jesus describes the activity of this helper that is going to arrive when he departs the helper. It's a word that is translated from a Greek word, parakletos. Um, It's a word that's also translated as counselor or comforter or advocate, a word that we find only five times in our New Testament and all at the pen of John. Um, But this paraclete, the Holy Spirit, is the third member of the Trinity. You probably Noticed this theme in our singing this morning, a lot of references to the doctrine of the Trinity, that this is the Holy Spirit who dwells among God's people and will dwell in God's people, what Jesus says here. So I actually think this is a quite appropriate conversation for us today, as this is Trinity Sunday on the church calendar. We are Making our way into the season after Pentecost you may have noticed that our banner on the wall which created by Dustin So thank you Dustin that has changed colors as we have entered into a new season Ordinary time or the season after Pentecost and I hope you like the color because it's going to be with us until Advent anyway this is Trinity Sunday Trinity is actually a word that You won't find in your Bible, though the idea is represented throughout. The the Trinity is a doctrine Christians developed to help put words to, or to help us at least to a certain degree, understand this scriptural concept. Historically, the, the Trinity is one of the most important doctrines of Orthodox Christian thought. In fact, the Apostles' Creed, which we Spent last fall working our way through and which our children are right now even as we're in this room next door They are working their way through the Apostles Creed It's a creed that is organized around three articles that comprise a Trinitarian confession of faith so it begins I believe in God the Father Almighty creator of heaven and earth Progresses: I believe in Jesus Christ his only son our Lord and then finally I believe in the Holy Spirit. this Trinitarian confession of faith, which is an essential affirmation of the church. But it is also one of the most difficult, dare I say, impossible to fully comprehend. You probably understand. If you try to do the math on this one, you are going to end up with a headache. And I think any time we think we have properly grasped the Trinity, we are probably verging on a historic heresy. All all illustrations, the egg, the water in its various forms, all language that we use to try to help us understand the Trinity is inadequate in describing an inexplicable mystery. And yet, it is still important for us as God's people to reflect on the nature of the God we serve. And the Trinity actually has, I think, important implications for how we go about our lives we we sing about some of those important implications this morning holy communion three in one bind us together in holy love so today instead of trying well i guess first instead of ignoring this difficult concept but also instead of trying to explain exactly how it works today we simply affirm that our scriptures articulate this concept, that Christ himself points to this reality, three distinct persons, but the same God. So we affirm what our scriptures teach, even though we can't fully wrap our minds around it, and I hate to break it to you, we never will be able to wrap our minds around it. So now we'll get back to... The text that we're considering as Jesus begins to describe some of the activity of this helper who John names back in chapter 14 this helper who is the Holy Spirit. We pick it up in verse 8 where we left off and When he comes that is the helper when he comes He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So, in addition to being a bit technical, th- this text has also troubled and confounded interpreters for centuries. We read that the Spirit Jesus promises to send will bring conviction in three distinct ways. Bring conviction concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and concerning judgment. What in the world do we do with all of that? There are a variety of opinions on on how you understand this. I want to highlight just one way that scholars have understood this threefold conviction First, perhaps, I mean, the first one is probably the most accessible, the one that makes the most sense to us. The Holy Spirit will bring conviction concerning sin. We're probably, many of us are familiar with that aspect of the Holy Spirit's work. But I think this is a really important reminder for us as the church, as we seek to share our faith, as we seek to embody God's kingdom in the world around us, the reminder that it is the Spirit who brings conviction, it is not us. It's not our words. It isn't our brilliance. It certainly isn't our gimmicks. We cannot force conviction. We trust instead the Spirit to do what only the Holy Spirit can do, which is to bring conviction concerning sin to the human heart. We've probably all experienced that in our own lives. We trust the Spirit to do that in the lives of those we love as well. Secondly, the Spirit brings conviction concerning righteousness. Some scholars have argued that this is a conviction that takes place because Those who are in Christ trust that we are justified because Jesus has gone to the Father as our advocate. And as we dwell in Jesus, we put on the righteousness of Christ, no longer trusting in our own righteousness. We trust that Jesus is advocating on our behalf. And then finally, conviction concerning judgment. Perhaps the conviction concerning judgment the spirit brings. Well, I mean, Jesus explicitly says that it is in relation to the ruler of the world. Conviction concerning judgment, specifically related to the ruler of the world. Not a human ruler, not a human king or emperor at any given time. Um, For John, again, the world is not. Reduced to an understanding of the planet Earth, but the world is the entire system that is operating in opposition to Jesus Christ and for Jesus that world has a ruler now whether Jesus here is referring to a specific distinct being the Satan or whether he is referring to the powers and principalities I think one of the points that we take away from this is that the ruler of this world these systems that stand in opposition to Christ The ruler of this world is not to be feared Why because Jesus says that the ruler of the world is judged and condemned The powers and principalities together with their ruler will not in the end be victorious Jesus alone will be victorious let's continue verse 12 I still have many things to say to you but you cannot bear them now it's one of the the frustrating statements from Jesus I think just tell us it, John also makes a frustrating statement at the end of his gospel like Jesus did a lot more than what has been recounted here but we don't have time to get are you kidding get into it come on make this a little bit longer but All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So first we see Jesus indicates that the Spirit, when this Helper comes, will convict. The second activity of the Spirit Jesus describes here is leading the disciples into all truth about Christ himself. So the truth of Christ is not only spoken to us through our scriptures, but the Spirit then makes that truth real to his followers now at the heart of christian spirituality is the recognition that the spirit is continuing to work in us too even in the 21st century that the spirit is working to change us and to align our thoughts and our lives with our lord and as followers of jesus we welcome that work of the spirit We welcome that work of the Spirit. You know, just as Jesus earlier in John's Gospel said, I I, I only say what I hear the Father saying. I only do what I see the Father doing. Likewise, the Spirit speaks on behalf of Christ, continually leading us to truth about Jesus. So coming off of the, the, coming into the season after Pentecost, last week was Pentecost Sunday, And with this conversation in mind, I think this is an appropriate thing to consider. A danger, I think, in Pentecostalism is that the work of Jesus and the work of the Spirit would be separated. And when that happens, oftentimes the work of the Spirit is elevated as the ultimate goal. But we are reminded by Jesus himself here that Jesus and the Spirit never work against one another. The Holy Spirit is always working to bring glory to Jesus. And if that's not what's happening, it is not the Spirit, and it is no longer Pentecost. Pentecost, the gifts of the Spirit, the activity of the Spirit, it all has Jesus Christ at the center. And so I resist any notion of Pentecost that paints the Pentecostal experience as some advanced plane of spirituality where only the really holy or spiritual people uh, advance from Jesus to the Holy Spirit. I I reject that notion as though I've passed the exam, so I've made it out of trigonometry and I'm headed now into calculus, the really, you know, the, the weighty stuff. That is not what Pentecost... Is about the Holy Spirit is always working to glorify Jesus Christ. Extending relational intimacy with Jesus beyond the 12 disciples. And this is why Jesus says "Christ, that, that his departure is actually in the end better for his disciples. It will benefit them because no longer is physical presence necessary for intimacy. The Holy Spirit makes relational intimacy possible for all people in all times, including you and me. This is not a dead religion of meaningless rituals that we participate in, but Christianity rests upon the possibility of relational intimacy. Because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, despite the physical absence of Jesus, God is still with us. Even now. Henry Nouwen put it this way. He said the spirit, his spirit, had not yet come. And although they saw and heard, smelled and touched him, they remained distant. Only later, when he was gone, could his true spirit reveal itself to them. In his absence, a new and more intimate presence became possible. A presence that... Nurtured and sustained in the midst of tribulations, and that created the desire to see him again. The great mystery of the divine revelation is that God entered into intimacy with us not only by Christ's coming, but also by his leaving. Indeed, it is in Christ's absence that our intimacy with him is so profound that we can say he dwells in us. Call him our food, and drink, which we will do in a moment, and experience him as the center of our being. I think, at its best, Pentecostal spirituality is this reminder that God never left. God never left. The story that we looked at last week, the Holy Spirit poured out as believers waited, that wasn't a tease. God's Spirit is with us, even now, comforting bringing conviction, advocating, leading us to truth, helping us remain faithful in a world where we will face challenges upon challenges. We're going to explore those ideas more in the next two weeks as we grapple with the problem of human suffering. But the presence, I think this is an appropriate way to set the stage for that conversation. The presence of the Holy Spirit assures us Whatever we face, that we haven't been left alone. As we sing this morning, he promised never to leave me alone. God is still with us. The relationship the disciples had with Jesus continues. We're never alone. I was reminded a couple of weeks ago, actually I think uh, Landon posted th- this thought from C.S. Lewis, his little book, Letters to Malcolm chiefly on prayer. Um, I want to read it. He said, we may ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with him. He walks everywhere incognito. And the incognito is not always hard to penetrate. The real labor is to remember, to attend. In fact, to come awake still more to remain awake. Pentecost reminds us of God's faithful presence. God draws near in Jesus. When Jesus departs, God stays near. In a world where there are systems and powers and principalities which stand in opposition to Christ, Jesus warns you will always have struggles and tribulation. But he promises at the end of this passage, not only will he send the Holy Spirit to help us in the midst of that, but ultimately Jesus says, I have overcome the world. This is our hope. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit to be our helper until the time when Christ's reign and victory over the world is fully realized. We cling to that hope this morning. Would you stand as we make our way to the table of our Lord, where we recognize the sustenance that Jesus is bringing through the presence of the Holy Spirit into our lives, even this morning as we take the bread in the cup I want to invite you to the table I'll say a prayer in a moment but we'll make two lines down these center aisles you can come to the table when you arrive the words will be spoken over you the body of Christ broken for you the blood of Christ shed for you you can take these elements on your own and return to your seat let's say a prayer as we come to the table Lord Jesus, it seems like a strange acknowledgement to make, but we thank you in a way for your departure because your departure has opened up the possibility for relational intimacy for even us. We do not take that for granted. We want to pause today to consider that. that you came down to meet us in the incarnation as you put on human flesh, but you remain with us even now. Holy Spirit, we invite your work in our lives. I pray for my brothers and sisters, myself as well you would meet us in the ways in which we need that today. That you would comfort us in places where we need comfort. That you would guide and direct those who are struggling to find a way forward. That you would convict us in those places we need conviction. We submit to your work. We welcome it. And we allow, it, we, we allow that work to point us to Jesus Christ. In all of those things, our hope, our prayer is that, Jesus, you would receive glory and honor. Almighty and everlasting God, you have given to us your servant's grace by the confession of a true faith, to acknowledge the glory of the eternal Trinity, and in the power of your divine majesty to worship the unity. Keep us steadfast in this faith and worship, and bring us at last to see you in your one and eternal glory, O Father, who with the Son and the Holy Spirit live and reign, one God, forever and ever, amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord today?